Magnus Podcast, episode 25. This is an introduction to Aristotle's physics with Dr. David Arius. Welcome back to the Magnus Podcast, a production of the Albertus Magnus Institute. With your help, we are dedicated to liberating the liberal arts. And so far, so good. These first three classes have really been a joy to peek in on. Uh, we've got fellows from all walks of life, all educational backgrounds, uh, intermingling with senior fellows who are doing a fine job of teaching good things under the light of great texts. And it's a beautiful thing to see uh, a class with people from really different educational backgrounds coming together into a wonderful pursuit of wisdom. And this class that we're going to listen into today featuring really one of my personal favorite teachers. Uh, he, I, I'm in love with his teaching style, I have to say. And uh, he's so humble that he won't say it for himself. But Dr. David Arias, who teaches... Uh, in the seminary uh, for the Fraternity of St. Peter in Denton, uh, Nebraska, at Our Lady of Guadalupe Seminary. He's a philosophy teacher there, and I've, I've come to know him over the years and work with him in a few different ways, and uh, he's, got, he's got such a good teaching style. Anyway, I'll stop talking about it and let you listen to it, uh, but his class is going exceptionally well. It's on natural philosophy and in this lecture, he's going to be getting into Aristotle's physics. So this is a great introduction to the physics of Aristotle, which can, in many ways, be a daunting text if you're not too familiar with it. So classes in the fellowship are usually two hours long, meeting once a week, every week. And usually they're split up between equal parts of lecture and a text-based seminar-style discussion among all the fellows in the class. And so I wanted to leave sort of the whole class here so you can get a feel for how it goes, not just the lecture portion, but you can stick around and hear the Q&A if you want to really get a, uh, an idea of the quality of student that's being drawn to the Albertus Magnus Institute. I think I'm, uh, it's very impressive. Uh, and, so, and so we are grateful to have everybody here that's here. In this particular class, you're going to hear uh, students asking questions who have all sorts of different educational backgrounds, uh, ranging from Thomas Aquinas College to Yale University and um, everywhere in between, or no college at all. Everybody in the class, in this particular class, is uh, in their 20s or 30s. So it's a beautiful cross-pollination of intellectually thirsty young adults. And what better way to be spending their time and um, if you want to join the fellowship, you can do that. Just uh, register, apply online. It takes about a minute on magnusinstitute.org. Read about the fellowship, share it with your friends. We are really grateful. We don't advertise much except for this podcast. So to have you sharing it means a whole lot for us. And uh, if you've been thinking to yourself, you know, how can I turn my hard-earned money into a better educated world well, what better way than to donate your hard-earned money to the Albertus Magnus Institute? It is completely tax-deductible. We don't like to ask for money a whole lot, but I can assure you your money goes to a very good cause, as you're going to hear in this class, taught by the great 
Dr. David Arias. So for more, visit magnusinstitute.org. And we'll see you next week. Enjoy this one. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and Holy Spirit, amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. St. Thomas Aquinas, pray for us. St. Albert the Great, pray for us. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and Holy Spirit, amen. One, one thing I want to note just before we get into any of the material for tonight is I, I noticed that there were a couple guys that got involved in an out-of-class discussion, so I want to I, I want to thank them just for doing that, for keeping up the, the discussion outside of class. So Daniel Lang and John Harold, I saw you guys were, were chatting about some of the things that we talked about uh, last class, and... I, I didn't want to weigh in. I kind of wanted to see if other people would 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 take up the, the baton and keep going. And I've noticed from past experience that sometimes when the professor weighs in, it kind of kills the discussion. So I, <laughs> I, I, I was hoping it would continue to to grow kind of organically. But but anyways, I it was a really good discussion. I mean, just between you two on on how to understand Aristotle's use of the particular. You know, when he states that we advance in our understanding of what something is from the universal to the particular. And, and as far as I, as far as I'm concerned, I think you guys really nailed, really nailed it on the head in saying that what Aristotle means by particular in this context is really just a, a less universal universal, right? So first we, first we begin by understanding what something is in a really universal way, a very general way. And then we advance from there, to understanding what that same thing is, but in a less universal in a less universal way, that is to say, in a more a more particular way, and so I thought, anyways, you guys just gave a very clear account of what Aristotle means by particular in in Book One, uh, Chapter One of the Physics. I also wanted to throw uh, this out there for some of you guys that might want to do a little bit more reading on on what we were talking about last time. And for those of you that might want to get some more, just some more examples of these, these more universal notions and these less universal notions of, of one and the same nature, so to speak. I know some of you guys uh, just from your, your liberal arts background have read the, the great uh, work uh, from the art of logic known as Porphyry's Isagogi. And that, that work was, was written by Porphyry to be read prior to uh, the reading of Aristotle's categories. So it's a very fundamental work in, in the art of logic. When you're studying logic, it's, it's a really good idea to read that right towards the beginning, if not right off the bat. And one of the things that you find in that, in that great work, the Isagogi, by the way, it's a very thin work. You could sit down and, 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 and read through it you know, in maybe a, an hour or so. It takes longer than that, I think, to understand all the nuts and bolts, but you could at least get through it in that time. But one of the things that comes up in that work is, is something which over the centuries has been named the, the tree of Porphyry. And there are even, the, in some of the medieval manuscripts, there are, are kind of diagrams, beautiful diagrams of the tree of Porphyry. 
And what it kind of looks like is, is this, just to give you a kind of thumbnail sketch of, of part of it. So if, if you have before you some sensible, you know, particular being like Socrates, you can, you can ask the question, well, what is this thing that's before me? Okay, what is this thing that I give the name Socrates to? And you can answer that question in a number of ways. Some of those answers are going to be more general and some are more particular, but they all give you an answer to the question, a true answer to the question, uh, what is this before me? So Porphyry tells us that one answer you can give to that question, what is this thing that I call Socrates, is you can say, this is a substance. So substance is an answer to that question. That's really the most universal answer you can give to that question. And that's equivalent to saying what I have before me is something that exists in itself, something that subsists, that it's a being. So you could say substance. You could also say body. Okay, this is a corporeal thing. You could also say a living body. You could say this is an animal. You could say this is man. And notice, in giving those giving those answers to the question, what is this? You're going from the more universal to the less universal, right? From the more general to the more particular. Each of those names, substance, body, living body, etc., they each tell you what this thing is. They each give you an understanding of the nature of this th thing that's before you. Some give you a more general understanding of that nature, some a more particular understanding of that very same nature. So that's a, a kind of a wonderful classical example, traditional example of the sort of thing that Aristotle has in mind in book one, chapter one of the physics, when he says we go from understanding something in a more universal way to understanding it in a more uh, particular way. It, now, if I can, let me just mention one, one more thing. Again, this is kind of a carryover from, uh, from last week, but I, I think it'll help uh, prime the pump for, for this week. So someone, one of the students uh, just emailed me privately and, and asked a question, which I, I thought the question is so good. It might be worthwhile just very briefly going over it uh, in class. And it was about the text that we studied, book one, chapter one of the physics, but we didn't actually touch on, on the question that the student had. And he asked something about the very first sentence, the opening sentence of the text. And I'll, I'll just read that to you in case you don't have your, your text there. He says, Aristotle says, in every inquiry, in which there are principles or causes or elements, understanding and science occur from knowing these. Now, you'll probably recall that last week we spent a little bit of time at least trying to hash out why he mentions principles, causes, and elements. Why does he mention all three of these? And in so doing, is he referring to the same thing under three different names? Or is there some sort of real distinction between principles and causes and elements that we should have in mind here. So we talked about that part of the sentence, but the student really asked about the terms understanding and science. Why does Aristotle say understanding and science? Are these two names uh, for the same kind of knowledge or are these names for a different sort of knowledge? And I, I think that Aristotle is, is mentioning uh, both of these here because they are two different kinds of knowledge. And 
both of them are based in one way or another on uh, principles, causes, and elements. Now, what's the difference between understanding and, and science? Well, both for Aristotle and then for, for his students, uh, you can say this. You can say that when we understand something, in the strict sense of the term, we, we grasp something or we know something intellectually, but we do so immediately. We know it immediately. That is to say, we, we know it intellectually without employing any sort of middle term. Okay? So, for example, you can understand what a triangle is. You can understand what a human person is. And in order to understand the nature of the triangle, the nature of the human person, you don't need uh, to move intellectually through a middle term in order to get to the understanding of that nature. There are even statements which we understand immediately or not, not through a middle term, not using a middle term. So for example, just to use one of the, the, the classic kind of stock examples, if if someone says to you, what do you think about this statement? Every whole is greater than any one of its parts. You'd say, I think that's true, right? Take the whole pizza. The whole pizza is greater than any slice of the pizza, no matter how big that slice is, right? Every whole is greater than any one of its parts, no matter how big its part is. So that statement, every whole is greater than its part, it's it's true, and you grasp it to be true. You don't need an argument to see that it's true. You grasp it immediately. That being said, your understanding of that statement is in some way based on the nature of a whole and the nature of a part. So your understanding of that statement does have, you might say, principles or causes. Likewise, when you understand, to go back to the triangle and the, and the man example, we understand what a triangle is or what a human person is, what a man is. Your understanding of those natures is, is based on uh, the, the nature of, or you might say the, uh, the essential principles of a triangle, the essential principles of a human person. Okay, so when we talk about understanding, just again to go back to the, the main point, we're talking about grasping something or knowing something intellectually, but without employing a middle term, without using middle term. By way of contrast, whenever we have science, what Aristotle calls episteme, or what St. Thomas Aquinas calls scientia, from which we get our word, our English word science, whenever we have science or scientific knowledge uh, in the classical sense of the term, not in the modern sense of the term, but in the classical sense of the term, we must employ a syllogism or some syllogisms, okay? We got to we, we have to utilize middle terms, or at least a middle term, in order to know that the conclusion uh, that we're that we're grasping with our intellects is in fact true. So again, to go give you just a classic stock example, if someone asks you, "Is it true that the interior angle sum of a triangle is equal to two rights. Is it true that the interior angle sum of every triangle is equal to two rights, two right angles? You'd say, yes, 
Yes, it is. And it must be so. It can't be otherwise. But in order for you or me or anyone else to understand, or sorry, I shouldn't say to understand, to know intellectually uh, that statement, that the interior angle sum of a triangle is equal to two rights, you, I, everyone else must employ a middle term. We must make use of a middle term. We have to have an argument in mind. We have to use a syllogism or maybe multiple syllogisms whereby we come to grasp, intellectually speaking, the truth of that statement. So hopefully that makes sense. So you could put it in a nutshell and you can say that when we understand something, we grasp it intellectually, we know it intellectually, but without using a middle term. When we have science or scientific knowledge of something, when we know something scientifically, we grasp it or know it intellectually, but through a middle term utilizing a middle term and we can't know we can't know it without using a middle term okay so that's something important to keep in mind and one of the reasons why that distinction is very important is because is because whenever you are are engaged in a science whenever you're doing a science like natural philosophy or mathematics or any other science you first want to come to an understanding of the principles of the science you first want to understand uh, those beginnings of the science that do not require middle terms in order to be known. And then based on your understanding of those principles, you want to move forward and you want to know the demonstrated conclusions or the conclusions that are proved within that science utilizing various middle terms. Okay, so that's, that's how you proceed in a science. And that's very much on Aristotle's mind, I think, even right here in the very, very first sentence of uh, Physics 1.1. And he goes into this stuff in a lot of detail in his, his great set of works called the Organon, his set of logical works. In particular, he goes into these matters in, in great depth in his work called the Posterior Analytics. And in the Posterior Analytics, he, he talks about the nature of scientific knowledge, how we acquire it, and and many other uh, related things. And Aristotle is extremely consistent in in uh, his works. That is to say that that he he basically gives you a method for how to acquire knowledge in his organon, and then he he follows that method throughout all of his works, every single one of them. So we're we're seeing something of that right here. We're seeing a, a small glimpse of that right here in the very first line of the physics. Okay. Oh, and by the way, I'll just mention this as, as kind of a, a theological teaser. Uh, this is something that goes well beyond the, the purview of, of this class, but it's something I think well worth thinking about. If, if you ask yourself, what are the seven gifts of the Holy Spirit? Well, you don't have to remember all of them right now, but you might remember that two of them go by these names, understanding and knowledge. Okay. Now, is there some relation between what Aristotle's talking about when he talks about understanding and, and knowledge, just as natural acts uh, that the mind uh, performs when he talks about understanding and science? Is there some relation between these things and the gifts of the Holy Spirit? known by the terms understanding knowledge. Absolutely. 
Absolutely. There's a kind of analogy. Okay. There's a kind of analogy. So you might say there, there's a way in which there's a way in which uh, the gift of the Holy Spirit that we call understanding is kind of like the natural act of the intellect that we call understanding. And there's a way in which the gift of the Holy Spirit, which we call knowledge, is kind of like the the natural act of the intellect that we call knowing scientifically. All right, so this is one of the many, many ways in which in which philosophy, the study of philosophy, prepares us for the, the highest and the queen of all of the sciences, namely theology. Okay. Now, without without uh, further delay, I'd, I'd definitely like to, to get into the material uh, that we have for tonight. So, keeping in mind what we saw in 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 physics one one, we saw that Aristotle he basically uh, shows us two different theses in physics one one. He he shows us that we always have to begin a science by understanding the principles of the science, and we always advance in our understanding of things, our knowledge of things, from uh, going from a more general grasp of things to a more particular grasp of things. And when you put those two theses together, what you come out with is basically this, that in natural science, in natural philosophy, what we're going to be doing at the outset is we're going to try to determine what the principles are. And since we always go from a general understanding to a particular understanding of, of something, we should expect that here at the outset of natural science, of natural philosophy, we're going to have a very general understanding of the principles. And only later on will we come to a more specific, a more uh, determinate, a less universal understanding of those very uh, same principles. Okay. Now, uh, for those of you guys that have have a Catholic liberal education, you, you know, undoubtedly, you remember undoubtedly from your education that there are many different kinds of principles, right? There are many different kinds of principles out there. Not all principles are created equal. Okay, they're of different sorts. And so you might ask this question, well, what kind of principles are we going to be delving into here at the outset of the, of the physics? Well, just to kind of give you a, he a heads up, first, we're going to determine what the intrinsic principles of mobile being are, okay? And that's going to take up most of book one of the physics. Okay, we're going to figure out what those intrinsic, what those, intri what those intrinsic uh, principles and causes of mobile being are, which constitute mobile being and make it to be what it is. And then in book two, we're going to turn our consideration to the principles of the science of natural philosophy. Okay. Another way to put this is to say that first we're going to study the principles of the, the intrinsic principles or the intrinsic causes of the very subject matter of natural philosophy. We're going to do that in book one. And then we're going to, we're going to look at the principles of the, of the science of natural philosophy uh, in book two. All right. So let that just kind of serve as a, as a very general outline for what we're going to be doing. Now, let's ask a question at this point. And the question is this. 
what was it that led the pre-Socratics and Aristotle to inquire into the principles of mobile being? What was it? Well, I think you can you can answer the question in in a very summary way first, and then we'll try to elaborate on on the answer. Okay, the summary answer is to say that what led them to wonder about the principles of mobile being was the reality of change or the reality of becoming. In particular, and especially, it was the reality of substantial change or what you might call substantial becoming within the realm of those natural things which are most known to us. Okay, by the natural things that are most known to us, what natural things do I have in mind? Things like human beings, familiar animals like dogs, cats, horses, and so on, familiar plants, okay, like the oak tree outside or the apple tree outside or whatever, and, and so on. Okay, so it was, it was precisely because Aristotle and before him the pre-Socratics saw that, that things like, like men and horses and plants come into being from previously existing materials, and it's because they saw that these very same things pass away, leaving behind various other natural things. It's because they observe these, these, these facts of reality that they then ask the question, okay, well, what exactly are these natural beings that, that constitute the world that we're a part of? Okay, what are these things in their, in their essences, in their natures? Okay, what are, their, what are the principles that make up these, these mobile beings? So that's really what got them wondering about the principles of mobile being. Now, packed into this answer that I just gave you guys, the answer uh, to the question, what was it that got them started wondering about the principles of mobile being, I think there are three fundamental realities about the natural world that we really need to uh, to pay attention to. And let's spend a little bit of time doing this. Okay, so you, you might put it this way. You might uh, say that these three fundamental realities are, are as follows. Okay, the natural things which are most familiar to us, again, like men, horses, and oak trees, they are one many individual beings or substances, which two are really distinct in kind, and three, they change into one another. Okay? I'll say those again. So, so basically, the pre-Socratics and Aristotle are, are, are maintaining or are affirming that the natural things that are most known to us are many individual substances, which are really different in kind, and they change into one another. And again, these are these are like three you might say uh, three givens of experience. Okay, these are these are realities that are given to us in our sense experience of the natural world, and they have the status of of principles or beginnings, which are immediately evident to us. Okay, so just to go back to that distinction between understanding and science that I mentioned a few moments ago, you could say that these are these are realities about the natural world that we understand, that we have understanding of. 
Okay, we don't need we don't need to employ syllogisms or any sort of middle terms in in order to come to see, in order to come to understand, in order to grasp intellectually the the truths which say that the natural things that are most known to us, men, horses, oak trees, and so on, are many individual substances of, of many really distinct kinds and that they change into one another. Okay, those are all givens of our experience. Keep that in mind because that's going to be extremely important uh, as, we, as we proceed. Now, let's talk a little bit about each of those givens kind of one by one just to just to help ourselves kind of see or understand that, that these are things that, that really are known to us, okay, that these are kind of bedrock, these are, if you will, bedrock principles. Okay, so when we say that the natural things that are most familiar to us are many individual substances, we, uh, we have to go back to that distinction between substance and accident, which I'm sure all of you guys remember, uh, from your previous education, but let me just briefly gloss over it. I'll give you the definitions of those terms that Aristotle gives us in his great work, The Categories. So he tells us, I'll begin with accident and then go to substance. So he tells us that that accidents are, are realities that in order to exist, they need to exist in another as in a subject. Okay, so, so think of yourself or think of your favorite pet. You can, you can say, hey, I have a certain color. I have a certain shape. I have a certain height. Okay, those are all, those are all accidents that belong to me, accidents in this technical sense of the term. Okay, those are all my, my color, my shape, my height. Those are all realities which exist in me as in their proper subject and they and they have to exist in a proper subject in order to exist naturally speaking right Fido the dog has similar characteristics right he has a certain shape a size a color if he's running around the backyard well motion is also something that inheres in him as in its proper subject so all of those would be accidents belonging to Fido now by way of contrast, any one of us and Fido is a substance. When we say that that when we say that I'm a substance or you're a substance or Fido's a substance, what we mean is that each of us is is something that does not exist in another as in a subject. Okay, that's the account of substance that Aristotle gives in the categories. In, in saying that, let's say Fido's a substance. We're saying that that Fido does not exist in anything else, the way in which his shape exists in him. Okay, so Fido's shape is in him, is in Fido, as in its proper subject. But Fido does not exist in any proper subject at all. Rather, he's a kind of ultimate subject, if you will. Now, does that mean that Fido does not exist in anything? No, he exists in many things, right? So Fido exists in the backyard as in a place. He exists 
maybe in, in your family as, as one part uh, exists within a whole, but he does not exist in anything as in a subject. Okay, he's in nothing as in a subject. And that is sufficient to constitute him as a substance. Okay, so when we affirm that the many natural things that are most known to us are individual substances, we're saying that you're a substance, I'm a substance, Fido's a substance. Each of us has many accidents, to be sure, but each of us is fundamentally one substance. And then when we say, going to the second aspect of, of uh, what we're talking about, when we say that the many individual substances that are most known to us are really distinct in kind, we just mean something kind of this basic. We mean that that if we look at the substances that make up the natural world, those that are most known to us, well, we can we can do, divide them up into really distinct kinds. We can say you have human persons, you have brute animals like Fido, you have plants, you have inanimate substances. And, and those are really distinct from one another in kind or in species. How do we know that for sure? Well, think of it this way. Take a human person, contrast him with Fido. The human person is a sentient living body that is rational. Fido is a sentient living body that's irrational. So you have the opposition there of the rational and the irrational. And that constitutes these two beings, a human person and Fido, as two really distinct kinds of things. Likewise, if you compare Fido to the oak tree, you could say, well, Fido's uh, a living a living substance, a living being, a living body that's sentient. The oak tree is a living body that is insentient or non-sentient. So again, we have a kind of radical opposition between these two substances. One sentient, one's not, and that's sufficient to constitute them as really distinct kinds of substances. Now compare the oak tree to the dirt that its roots are planted in or to the water that it consumes with its roots. You could say, well, both the oak tree and the, the dirt or the water, both of those are bodily substances, but one's alive and one's not. So therefore, they're really distinct in kind. And then I think it's it's pretty clear from our our sense experience in the natural world that that these substances that are very familiar to us and that are distinct in kind change into one another, right? So Fido, he at some point will he'll 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 meet his end. If if he if he unfortunately chokes on a on a milk bone or something, then Fido turns into the corpse of a dog. And those are really distinct things, Fido and the corpse of a dog, right? One's a living sentient body. The other is just some non-living inert either cluster of substances or singular substance, right? Doesn't matter which. But whatever that corpse is, it's really distinct from, uh, from Fido, right? And likewise... Likewise, Fido, he didn't always exist, but he, he came into being, right? So there were some canine reproductive cells that were really distinct from Fido. They came together, and Fido came into being from them. So you can see here, if you think about it, if you think about uh, Fido's life, 
you can see how his life is, is, it kind of has two bookends, if you will, right? What are those bookends? Well, his coming into being on the one hand and his passing away on the other. Each of those is a substantial change. What happens in between those two bookends? Well, you have Fido's life in between those two termini or in between those two limits. And Fido's life is, is marked by accidental changes. So Fido, he gets bigger, you know, he moves around, he eats, he does all sorts of things, right? But all of the changes that, that occur throughout Fido's life, from when he comes into being, when he passes away, all of those are accidental changes as far as Fido's concerned. That's not to say that Fido is not involved in one way or another in substantial changes every day of his life. In fact, he is. Think of this. When, when Fido, when Fido is, is given a treat, when he's given that milk bone that he doesn't choke on, and he consumes it, what happens? Well, he changes it into his very substance. Or when he gets a special treat and he gets to eat that, that steak bone, he changes that into his very substance. When you or I eat breakfast, lunch, or dinner, we take some substance, some substance that is not ourself, let's say like an apple, and we transform that apple into human flesh and human bone and human blood and, and so on. Okay? So even though even though Fido changes only accidentally throughout his entire life. He, he's involved in many, many substantial changes. He's involved in substantial changes on a daily basis. We're involved in substantial changes on a daily basis. In order for us to stay alive, substantial changes have to take place many times a day, right? We have to eat. We have to transform that food into ourselves many times a day. So it's the food that's undergoing the substantial change. Okay, thankfully, not us. By the way, I'm... I'm uh, thinking about substantial change, I'm reminded of, of this this event. I'll tell you a quick story. Many years ago, I was I was teaching an introduction to philosophy class uh, back in Houston, Texas. I was a graduate student. I was teaching at a community college there, and we were talking about a substantial change. and And I happened to make the point that that no living thing, no living thing like Fido or or anything else can undergo a substantial change and live through it, right? That, that can't happen. And I had this, uh, this middle-aged lady in class, she raised her hand and she said, I underwent a substantial change. And, and I looked at her, I was kind of surprised. And I said, well, would you please explain? And, and she said, she said, yes, of course. She said, you know, I'm, I'm normally this 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 very just just kind and and, and level-headed and, and very quiet woman, but I'll tell you, when I was in labor with my son, I underwent a substantial change. So, uh, I guess there's there's at least that one counterexample to that general truth that you can't undergo a substantial change and and live through it. That one lady is is living proof that uh, it can be done. Okay, so. Then we went on to talk about the, the fallacy of equivocation after that. Okay, so I, I think you can 
you can hopefully see from all this how uh, how these these things that we're talking about, okay, these these fundamental givens of our sense experience are things that really are known to us. We really do understand these things. Okay, now let's let's get back to uh, kind of the the main topic. So so now that now that we see what it is that makes us wonder about the principles of mobile being, now that we see uh, what it is about reality that make that made the pre-Socratics and Aristotle wonder about the principles of mobile being, let's see what the pre-Socratics had to say. And I gave you that pre-Socratic packet last week. We don't have time to go through that uh, cover to cover. We can definitely bring up any text that you want to look at uh, in the second half of the course when we have uh, a discussion. But I do want to draw your attention to to uh, the pre-Socratic positions that Aristotle highlights right at the beginning of chapter two in, in book one of the physics. And, and notice this, and I think this is just very important to, to see as, as a matter of Aristotle's methodology. Notice that before Aristotle attempts to give you his answer to the question, what are the, the principles of natural things? What are the principles of mobile being? He first looks to what his predecessors have said. Okay, and this is this is something that's essential to Aristotle's method. Okay, he he takes his predecessors, the pre-Socratics, to be wise men. Okay, at least in in some departments, at least in some areas. Okay, and he thinks he can learn from them. And so the first thing he does when he asks he asks an important question, uh, you know, of, of really uh, significant you know, kind of, of interest and, and depth is he asks, okay, what have the wise before me said about this? Now, he doesn't think that they necessarily got it right, but he always consults them, okay, at least to, to see what the different positions are. All right, so let's look at chapter two. Here's what he says right at the outset. He says, but it is necessary that there be one principle or many, and if one, either immobile, as Parmenides and Melissa say, or moving, as the students of nature say. Some saying the first principle is air, some water. If many, either they are finite or infinite. Either the principles are finite or infinite, he's saying. And if finite, but more than one, either two or three or four, or some other number. And if infinite, either as Democritus says, one in kind, but differing in shape, or else differing in species or even contraries. And then let me just read the last uh, the, the last part of that. He says, and those who ask how many beings there are are asking a similar question. For they ask whether those first things from which beings exist are one or many, and if many, whether finite or infinite. Whence they're asking whether the principle and the element is one or many. Okay, so here, Aristotle does something kind of really amazing if you think about it. So he, what he does is he looks back to what his predecessors have said about what the principles of natural things are. And, you know, well, if you had a chance to read through that Socratic, that pre-Socratic packet that I gave you, 
you see that there's an abundance of different positions presented there. And those fragments aren't all that easy to understand, right? You can kind of you can kind of get what some of the guys are saying, but maybe not what other what, what some of the other guys are saying. And so, you know, you or or I or you know, any of us mere mortals that just read the pre-Socratic packet without Aristotle's help, you know, we're probably going to be at a loss. We're probably going to say, there's just a whole bunch of different opinions here. I, I can't make heads or tails of them. You know, so what's going on? Well, Aristotle, he read what his, what his predecessors had to say. And in that text that I read to you guys, he organizes the positions pretty brilliantly. One of the things that he does in that text is, is he shows us that the pre-Socratics have given, in a certain way, all possible answers, all of the possible answers uh, to the question, what are the principles of mobile being? How many such principles are there? Okay, they've, they've covered the whole, the whole spectrum of possible answers. He tells us that some pre-Socratics say, you know what? There's just one principle from which natural things come to be. Other guys say there are many principles, that is to say more than one principle from which natural things come to be. That's absolutely exhaustive if you think about it, right? If, if you go into this knowing that there's some principle or principles from which natural things come to be, and you ask, well, how many are there and what are they? Well, either the question is one or many. And then Aristotle subdivides uh, these, these two fundamental options. He says, well, some of the guys that say there's, there's just one principle, they say that this one principle is absolutely immobile, that it doesn't change. Others say, guess what? It's mobile. It does change. And uh, if you look at the guys that say there are many principles from which natural things come to be, some of these guys say, well, these many principles are finite in number. Others say, guess what? They're infinite in number. And out of the guys that say they're infinite in number, some guys say that the principles are, the infinite number principles are all of the same kind. Others say the infinite number of principles are of different kinds. So you see that they've, they've covered all of the possible bases, right? They have, they've covered all of the options. Now you might wonder, okay, so what's Aristotle going to do with this? He has all the possible answers before him. How is he going to address them? Well, he does something absolutely brilliant in the next several chapters. I'm actually writing a, uh, an article on, on the order of, of chapters uh, two through six uh, in book one of the physics. And, and I'll tell you what, what the thesis is. And this is basically how I think Aristotle proceeds in a nutshell. So if, if you lay out all of those, those five positions that he mentions there right at the outset of chapter two, here's the order in which he presents them. It might help to write them down. I wish I had a blackboard at this point, but, but I don't. But here's the order that he goes and he says, the principles are either one and immobile. That's number one. Or one and mobile, that's number two. Many, finite number, that's number three. Many, 
infinite in number, all of the same kind. That's number four. Many, infinite uh, in number, and many in kind. That's position number five. That's the order that he presents us with right there at the outset of chapter two. Now, if you read chapters two through six all the way through, you see that he spends those most of those chapters or most you know the bulk of this the material in those chapters uh, he, he he spends uh, he spends uh, refuting these positions okay in what order does he refute these positions I think this is how he proceeds if, if I'm reading it correctly okay in uh, for first he takes up the position of Parmenides and Melissus that says there's only one principle and it's immobile he refutes that. That's the first position that he presented. Then he refutes the position of Anaxagoras, which says that the principles are many, infinite in number, and of many kinds. That's the fifth position. So first he takes out the first position, then he takes out the fifth one in the order that he presented them in. So he's taken out the two extremes. Boom. He knocked them both out. Now he has three positions left, number two, number three, and number four. What he does is he now establishes some general principles, namely that, or so, so I should say some general truths, uh, one of which is that the principles of natural things have to be contraries. Having established that, he then refutes the, position, the second position that he presented in chapter two, which says that there's there's one principle and it's mobile. After that, he takes out the fourth uh, the the fourth position, which says that the principles are are many, infinite in number, and all of the same kind. That's like Democritus's position. What's he left with? He's left with one position, which is the the mean position the middle position, the third position that he that he mentioned in order. And that's the position that says that the principles of nature are many, but finite in number. There are some determinate number like two, three, four. And then what he does by the end of chapter six is he shows you that the principles are either two or three in number. And there's some reason for thinking there are two, and there's some reason for thinking there are three. So there's there's kind of a beautiful order there. If you look at, <clears throat> excuse me, how Aristotle has proceeded. He has these five positions. He takes out the two extremes first, number one, number five. Then he takes out number two and number four. Then he's left with position number three, which is still kind of indeterminate because if all you know is that the number of principles of natural things are are many and finite. Well, how many are they going to be? Two, three, four, five, six, seven. What's the number? He shows you two or three. And then when he gets into chapter seven, we're going to get into chapter seven and chapter eight and chapter nine next class. When we go into those, we'll we'll see how he how he shows us in a definitive way, in a determinate way that the principles really are only two or three, depending on how you take them. In one way, it's true to say that they're only two. In another way, it's true to say that they are three.
Okay. So that's that's how he proceeds. That's kind of an, an overview. Hopefully that, that helps you out just in terms of your your reading of chapters, uh, you know, two through six on on your own. Now I, I want to get into some more more details uh, than than just that. Let's let's descend into into some details. So Aristotle he first divides the pre-Socratic positions into those those five positions that exhaust all of the possibilities. But one of the other things that he does, I think, in chapters two through six, is he really distinguishes the different pre-Socratic positions into what you might call two schools of thought, okay? The first school of thought, I'm going to give the name ancient philosophical monism to, to it, okay? And to the second school of thought, I'm going to give the name ancient philosophical uh, pluralism. Uh, so ancient philosophical monism, ancient philosophical pluralism. Those are kind of the two schools of, of thought that the pre-Socratic positions uh, fall into. That is to say the pre-Socratic positions that don't end up denying that the natural world exists. There are some pre-Socratics out there that deny that there is such a thing as the natural world. And Aristotle does address them in chapters two through six to some extent, but he spends way more time taking on those pre-Socratics who, who think that the natural world is real. <laughs> Um, and for good reason. Okay, so just really briefly, I see that we're coming up on the halfway mark. Let me just try to outline what these two schools of thought say, and and I'll, I'll mention some some names of certain pre-Socratics so you can you can kind of see which guys belong to which school. At least some of the guys in in each of the schools. Okay, so basically. The ancient philosophical monists explain our experience or attempt to explain our experience of substantial becoming through saying that there exists one material substance like water or air or fire or something else, some, something else which, which gets more rarefied or more condensed. And in getting more rarefied or more condensed, it goes from being this sort of thing to being that sort of thing. So the classic example is, is what you find in, in Thales. So if you look at Thales, who says all things are water, Thales thinks that there exists one material substance, namely water, and by water, getting either more rarefied, more thinned out, or through getting more condensed, you have things change, okay? Or you have the apparent coming to be and ceasing to be of substances. And you can kind of you can kind of see why he might think this. You know, if you take some water and you and you boil it in a in a tea kettle, it seems like what you're doing there is you're, you're thinning out the water, you're rarefying it, and what happens? Well, it seems like the water turns into air. So it seems like one substance turns into another substance. Or if you, if you take the water and you put it outside in the, in the wintertime, assuming you're not in California or, or some other hot place, then uh, the water freezes, right? So he'd say the water's becoming more and more 
condensed or the parts of the water are becoming more and more condensed. And therefore, it seems like you have a, a change from this one substance, water, into something else, something that resembles maybe like a rock or, or earth or something of that sort. Huh? So all of the ancient philosophical monists explain substantial becoming by saying that there's one material substance that, again, gets more rarefied or gets more condensed. And then by way of contrast, the ancient philosophical pluralists, they explain our experience of sub substantial becoming through, through positing many material substances being gathered together or separated apart. So some of these guys, like Democritus, say that, that there exist many uncuttable, invisible, because they're so small, material substances, which he calls atoms. And by these atoms either being gathered together or separated apart, he explains the apparent coming to be and ceasing to be of things like human persons, dogs, cats, and so on. And then you have other guys like Empedocles who say that there exist many particles of earth, air, fire, and water. And again, by these particles being gathered together, separated apart, he attempts to explain the apparent coming to be and ceasing to be of things like human persons, dogs, cats, uh, trees, and so on. Okay. So in a nutshell, that's what both of those uh, positions end up saying. Now, if, if you think about it, here's something that's really important. And this is something I'll, I'll say just uh, right before we, we take the break. But if you think about it, both ancient philosophical monism and ancient philosophical pluralism, they, they end up denying all three of those givens from our sense experience that we talked about earlier. Okay. So both of these schools of thought hold that none of the natural things most known to us is an individual substance. Both these schools of thought hold that none of the natural things that are most known to us really differ in kind. And they both hold that substantial change does not occur. Take Thales's position again, maybe as like the easiest. And so doing finish up book Recording one. Recording it. And so doing uh, finish up book one of, of the physics. So, okay, so right at the tail end of the first half, we, we, we saw that, that, both of these schools of thought are at least in some measure false in as much as the accounts that they try to give of the principles of natural things end up denying those, those three self-evident givens that we talked about right at the beginning of class. Now we might ask this question. I think this is very much in Aristotle's mind. Uh, what is it about ancient philosophical monism and ancient philosophical pluralism which, which makes these positions contradict the immediately known truths, the givens of our sense experience that, that we talked about earlier? Well, I, I think the answer is actually pretty straightforward. It's the fact that both of these schools of thought state that the material which underlies substantial becoming is some already existing substance or substances. Okay, so it's precisely because Democritus says that the, the ultimate materials 
that change are so many already existing substances that he ends up denying those givens of our sense experience, right? That the things, the natural things that are familiar to us are individual substances that are distinct in kind and that come to be and cease to be uh, substantially speaking. And something similar could be said about Thales and about all of the other guys that belong to either one of these schools. Okay. Now you might ask the question, okay, well, if, if these guys drop the ball, you know, in saying that the material which underlies substantial change is some already existing substance or substances, then what is the truth of the matter regarding the principles of mobile being? Well, Aristotle begins to tackle this question, but he, he does it in a very step-by-step -step procedure. And he begins to tackle this all-important question, which will occupy him for the rest of, of book one, really. Uh, he, he begins to tackle this question by telling us that perhaps ancient philosophical monism and ancient philosophical pluralism are not entirely false positions. So perhaps there's a lot of, of partial truth to these positions. Indeed, if we remove from them the claim that the material which underlies substantial becoming is some already existing substance or substances, then perhaps the remaining aspects of these accounts of the principles of mobile being could be true. And Aristotle takes this possibility very seriously in book one of the physics. And, and here's basically how he does that. He, he looks at what these two schools of thought say, and he asks, what do they have in common? What do they have in common? Well, if you look at, at what all of the members of ancient philosophical monism say, all the members of that school say, they basically say this. They say there's one material, you know, stuff, and it either gets rarefied or condensed. So they end up positing, it seems, three principles of change. Material, rarefaction, condensation. Those are three principles. And, and notice this. You could even be more general, and you could say they posit some underlying material that undergoes the change, and they posit two opposite or two kind of contrary principles. Again, and those more specifically are rarefaction condensation. Okay, so ancient philosophical monism posits a material principle and then two other principles which are opposed or contrary to one another. Now, if you, if you look at what all of the members of ancient philosophical pluralism posit as principles, they posit some material stuffs, okay? So some materials, and then they say those materials are either gathered together or separated apart. So, again, they have some material or materials plus two opposed principles, gathering together, separating apart. So what unites both of these schools or what both of these schools have in common is that they both posit, you might say, three principles, that there are three principles that account for change, some material principle, and then two other principles distinct from the material principle, which are opposed to one another. And Aristotle 
seeing this, uh, seeing this, this kind of uh, sameness amongst all of the differences in the particular positions that the pre-Socratics have, he says, you know what? The fact that the principles are, are, are a material principle and two opposite principles, okay, that's probably the truth of the matter. Now, why does he why does he think that that's probably the truth of the matter? Well, here's something that he says in his important work called the Topics. In the Topics, Aristotle talks about what he calls a, a probable statement, sometimes also translated as as a weighty statement or a statement that one should uh, give th- give serious thought to and and maybe even think is true. Okay, here's the definition he gives to that sort of statement, to a probable statement. He says, a statement is probable or weighty or deserving of serious consideration if everyone thinks that it's true or if most people think that it's true or if the wise think that it's true. And he says, if it's the third of those cases, if the wise think that a certain statement is true, then you have three possibilities. Either all of the wise think that it's true most of the wise think that it's true, or the wisest of the wise think that it's true. And in any of those cases, you should take that statement very seriously, okay? And maybe even think that it's most likely a true statement. What are some examples of this kind of statement? Well, think think of something like this. Isn't it, isn't it the case that most human persons in our day and age, think that that the world, that the earth, is round, is spherical in shape. Yes. Now, how many of us have actually taken the time to go through the proof that shows that that is true? Well, probably most of us have not, right? Probably most of us believe that that's true, that that statement's true, that the earth is spherical. Why do we believe that it's true? Well, because either everyone thinks it's true, or most people think it's true, or those people that should know something about the earth shape, the wise, the, the, those that are wise in this department, think that it's true. Huh? Okay, so that's a probable statement for, for us, that the earth is spherical. Or take the statement that says, the sun is the center of our solar system. Most people take that to be a weighty statement, a statement that you should that you should assent to. Why? Because most people think it's true. And the wise, those that are wise in astronomy or cosmology or astrophysics, they, they think it's true. All right? So here in natural philosophy, we see something similar. We see that, that all of the pre-Socratics, they all agree that the principles of, of natural things consist in some material into other opposed principles. And so Aristotle, seeing that agreement amongst them, he says, you know what? That's probably right. They've probably hit the truth of the matter, you know, at some level. And so what he's going to go on to do in chapter 7 and following, especially in chapter 7, though, is he's going to determine in a definitive way what the nature of that material principle is that underlies substantial change, and what the natures of the other two opposed principles are, okay, that that 
successively, so to speak, uh, exist in or inhere in the material principle that underlies substantial change. All right. So that kind of brings us to, to the end of, of chapter six. And I've been speaking kind of in, in very general terms uh, about chapter six. Let me just mention, by the way, I haven't seen the most recently posted things in the chat, but I thought it was pretty cool that, that some of you guys asked about, about conversion and asked about, I guess, what theologians call the justification of the soul, namely when sanctifying grace is infused into uh, the soul uh, by God. And, and you, you mentioned that, that this is likened to a substantial change. Doesn't our Lord say in the Gospel of St. John that unless a man be born of water and the Holy Spirit, he can't enter the kingdom of heaven? Okay, so there you have, you have regeneration talked about, rebirth talked about, right? And, and I, I think it's true that, that language that is, that is reminiscent, so to speak, of substantial change is certainly utilized when we talk about the justification of the soul, when we talk about the reception of sanctifying grace into the soul. Now we might ask, is there a substantial change uh, in the strict sense of the term that occurs there? I, I don't think there is. Why not? Because the same substance that was there before the change, namely this human person, is there after the change as well. If, if there were a strict substantial change, well, then uh, whenever someone receives sanctifying grace, they would, they would actually die, right? Uh, but that doesn't happen. Parents would probably not take their infants to be baptized as readily if, if that occurred, right? So, so there's no substantial change in, in the strict sense when, when someone receives sanctifying grace. Nonetheless, we do talk about justification as, as a rebirth, as a kind of regeneration. We talk about the, the, the new Christian, okay, the new Catholic who who has just been baptized as a new creation, right? Why is that the case? Well, because in receiving sanctifying grace, a, a person, a human person, does receive a participation in the divine nature, right? So the human person does, in a sense, receive a new nature when he receives sanctifying grace. And he also, in receiving that, that new nature, he receives a new principle of life. So it's like receiving, it's like, I stress the word like here, it's like receiving another soul, so to speak, right? Sanctifying grace is, is a principle of supernatural life that inheres in the essence of the soul, and it makes the person who has it capable of supernatural actions, okay, of actions that belong to a different order than the actions that he can perform naturally just by just by his his rational human soul. So, so hopefully that makes that makes a little bit of sense. Uh, I have a quick question. Really yeah, sure. Uh, so, in the case of uh, Lazarus, was Lazarus the same Lazarus before as he was after? That's a really good question. Uh, <laughs> so, I, I think he was. Now, if you ask, okay. Well, 
Well, let's let's kind of make it let's let's even make it a little bit more more determinate. So when you say was he the same Lazarus, I think I think what you mean the way I'm interpreting you is is what was he was he numerically speaking the same human person? Okay. Uh, yeah. Yes, I, I I think he was. Now you you might ask, well, why would we say that in in that case? Well, the reason is because the the very same principles that constituted him prior to his death now constitute him again, right? So if 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 God, let's say, uh, per impossibile, gave to Lazarus a, a new soul right? Well, then he wouldn't be the same man, okay? But because it was the very same soul that had, had left his body, you know, a few days before, you have the same man. And since it was the same matter, or at least some of the same matter that constituted his body prior to death, you have the same, you have the same body. So, yeah, you do have the same principles there, uh, and and the principle that's the more important of the two for for making sure that that numerical uh, identity is preserved in the case of, of human persons is is that you have exactly the same human soul uh, before and after. Okay, in this case, before and after. I don't know. Does that does that make some sense? There's 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 more I could I, I could say about that if you want to go into uh, to more detail, but um, Daniel no, no, Ng asked a question about it in the chat. Yes, if if it's strictly necessary to have the same matter uh, in the resurrection that you're talking about, or is it only the soul? And he asks, uh, would the would the general resurrection of the dead be able to work otherwise? Okay, yeah, that's, a, that's that's an awesome question. So, yeah, so so let me let me go uh, into a little more detail regarding what Saint Thomas has to say about about the uh, the, the resurrection and our numerical unity uh, after the resurrection. So, one one thing that he points out is this, actually. So. Hopefully this won't be too much of a, of a, of a tangent, but let me, let me bring up an, another question that is intimately related to this. So, okay, so there's the general uh, Thomistic teaching that we won't go into uh, right now that says that the, that the principle of the individuation of, of, of souls and of, and more generally of of substantial forms and of forms, is a material that's subject to quantity. Okay, so another way of putting that would be to say, kind of more particular way of putting that would be to say that that the reason why there can be many many dogs in the world, many many beings in the world that have canine nature, is because matter is subject to quantity and and therefore there's this part of matter and that part of matter and so because there are different parts of matter because matter has part outside of part this part of matter can receive canine nature 
And this other part of matter over here can receive canine nature. And so therefore you can have two numerically distinct dogs, okay? In this part of matter, you have dog soul A. In this part of matter, you have dog soul B. Okay, well, given that teaching that the principle of individuation of, of material substances and their forms is, is matter with a quantity, okay, given that, there's kind of a gnarly question that comes up, and, and that's this. What is it that keeps departed human souls really distinct from one another after they've left the human bodies that they belong to? Okay, so if if St. Peter and St. Paul, before they died, had as the, the, the principles of the individuation of their of, of their humanity, you know, this matter and that matter, well, then when their souls leave the bodies, when their respective bodies, when their souls leave uh, this matter and that matter, what prevents those souls from just, just kind of, you know, melding into one, right? What is it that keeps right now in the beatific vision, St. Peter's soul and St. Paul's soul numerically distinct, really distinct? What is it? Well, St. Thomas has a whole teaching on this. He says that, he says that when, when any substantial form, human soul included, is, is received into uh, its respective matter, he says that that it receives from that particular matter what he calls in Latin a commensuratio, a commensuration. In other words, in other words, that soul or that form is kind of measured to that particular matter. Okay, so when when God created Saint Peter's soul and Saint Paul's soul at the moment of, of their conceptions. And in so doing, in creating those souls, infusing those souls into their respective bodies, those souls were fitted to those bodies. And those souls received, they each received a distinct commensuration to those different bodies. And since those souls, since every human soul is, is immortal and subsistent, the commensurations that belong to those souls exist after those souls depart from their respective bodies. And so it's the commensurations existing in the distinct human souls that actually, that actually uh, kind of ground those souls as numerically distinct. Here's, here's something uh, from the order of sense knowledge that St. Thomas throws out there just, just to help make this, you know, kind of, easier to grasp. He says, okay, imagine you have a whole bunch of, of glasses of different shapes and sizes. You have one set over here, and then you have a, another set of, of different glasses, again, different shapes and sizes over here. Into this first set, you pour water into each of the glasses. Into this other set, you pour hot wax into each of the glasses. Okay. Now, let's say you take a baseball bat or a hammer or something and, and, and you break each of the glasses 
that has water in it. Okay, well, each of the waters, while while each of them was was in its glass, it was fitted to that glass, right? But once you once you break the glasses, what happens to the water? It just forms a puddle, right? The the distinct commensurations that those waters had while they were in the glasses, they're lost. And you just get a puddle. That's what happens with water. Okay, what happens, though, with the wax? Well, if you've left the wax in the glasses long enough for it to harden, well, it's true to say that each wax received a kind of commensuration from being in, you know, this glass of this size with this shape. But guess what? Now that commensuration, it belongs to the wax. So that if you break each of these glasses, do the different waxes cease to be distinct? Do they form a puddle like the water? No. You still have this wax and that wax and this other wax. Why? Because they've received into themselves uh, those distinct commensurations and, and the hardened wax is able to keep that commensuration independently from the glass. So the immortal human soul is more akin to the wax than it is to the water. The souls of, of I should say, the poor souls of Fido and Benji and Lassie and Toto, they're, they're, like, they're like the waters, okay? Their commensurations they don't survive. The commensurations of their souls don't survive uh, the deaths of those animals, and neither do those souls, <clears throat> excuse me, survive the deaths of those animals. Okay? Anyways, hopefully that makes a little bit of sense. Now, why am I going into all this? Well, because if you see that, that each human soul has a commensuration to a particular body, okay, if each human soul is fitted to this body and to no other, well, then in order for the human, this particular human person, let's say St. Paul, after the resurrection to be numerically the same guy as he was before, he has to have at least some of the matter in his body okay, configured in the same way that he had prior to death. Now, we don't have to worry about, you know, how that's gonna how that's gonna come back together, right? Saint Paul's Saint Paul's matter right now is scattered throughout the entire world in the form of relics, right? So his body is kind of a mess from a human point of view, but thankfully God's omnipotent and omniscient, so. <laughs> He'll be able to take all of those relics and put them back together and, and reconstitute enough of, of St. Paul's body to, uh, to provide for the, 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 the fitted body that, uh, that his soul needs. Uh, anyways, hopefully that makes a little bit of sense. Do you guys have any other questions or, or comments? Any other stuff we've gone over? Uh, if nobody else 
has one. Uh, could I ask what does the uh, the commensurateness of the soul to the body? What would that consist in? So I've always always wondered. Um, you know, wouldn't also the souls be distinguished from one another by the degrees of the virtues that they, they attained in this life and their degree of charity and, and that sort of thing? So um, maybe because the virtues, they do seem to be partially, uh, they're bound up with the material. So is, is it is that part of it, the way in which the the matter and the soul kind of formed each other during life is what is what marks that body and and that soul uh, to be forever kind of together? Yeah, that's yeah. Yeah, so I, I, I think well just to go back to the, the whole issue of the principle of individuation just for just for a second so if, if we if we think of something like well let's say we think of, of socrates and plato right we have socrates and plato and and socrates and plato are are really distinct individuals and we can ask ourselves if looking at socrates and plato what is it that distinguishes socrates's uh, wisdom from plato's wisdom they're two numerically distinct wisdoms, right? Uh, that which that which grounds there being two wisdoms here is the fact that we have, have two substances, right? So you might say that that it's it's because we have two numerically distinct substances that we can have two numerically distinct wisdoms, and likewise with the other accents. That, that belong to Socrates and Plato. They're numerically distinct because we have numerically distinct substances. And so I think when it comes to uh, things like different uh, levels of grace in, in souls uh, after death, different levels of charity, say, as well, well, those, those differences are, are grounded in the souls themselves already being distinct. So in other words, you have to look to some, some prior principle of numerical distinction in the souls themselves. And that's where the commensuration comes in. So, so it's because it's because St. Peter's soul is fitted to this body and St. Paul's soul is fitted to that body. And it's because those respective fittings, so to speak, uh, serve, the separation of those souls from those bodies that you then have a foundation for saying this soul really is different from this body or sorry sorry this soul really is different from this other soul and because those souls are numerically distinct then you have the foundation for there being you know this sanctifying grace over here and that sanctifying grace over there, this theological virtue of charity and this guy, uh, this theological virtue of charity and this other guy in this other soul, I should say. So yeah, I I don't want to deny at all that that the differences that you're bringing up really are differences. They they absolutely are. And they make all the difference, uh, you know, as far as one's level in heaven is concerned. And, and, and I think the, the differences that you 
that you pointed out between the two human persons uh, while in this life, th- those are real differences too. And those, those are extremely important. Those are extremely important. At the same time, those differences have as their foundation these these things that I'm calling, you know, principles of individuation, if, if that makes sense. It, it seems to me that uh, what you're describing by commensuration is more of like uh, when a human person dies, like the configuration of matter that they're in is is saved by God or something. And so in, when they undergo resurrection, it's not necessarily the same particular matter, but it's just that, you know, God either puts together new matter or or gathers together the pre-existing matter into the same configuration. Because otherwise you would run into problems with like, you know, if uh, parts of someone's matter has decayed or corrupted and become part of a different soul. And, you know, how would you you resurrect both people at the same time? And so it seems like more it's a configuration. And also the fact that, you know, every person has a unique configuration, like they're just an infinite number of configurations of matter that you can have practically that in that that kind of uh, individuates them do you think that's like an accurate representation of uh, what you're what you were saying so I, I I think you're I think you're right that the configuration of matter really is really is uh, something that that's essential there right so that yeah maybe the body has to have something of the same shape for example uh, that it, that it had before and you know maybe it has to be I don't know if we wanted to talk about this at, at the level of, 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 you know, DNA or something like that, you'd say, well, maybe there has to be, you know, something of the same chemical composition uh, there that there was, you know, now that there, that there was before. So something like that has, has to be the case. Now I do think in, in order for, in order for that to be there, you do need at least, at least some of the same matter, that you that you had before, and this will probably make a little bit more sense maybe after we after we get into the material uh, for next class when we talk about what the most basic, the most fundamental matter uh, consists in, and we see that 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 it can't even through substantial change, you know, be be done away with, you know, altogether or or simply speaking. Now, Daniel brings up an important uh, point. You know what happens when, when, when someone's when the matter they used to belong to someone now belongs to someone else. There's I don't know if any of you guys have seen this, but in Saint Thomas Aquinas's Summa Contra Gentiles, when he talks about the the resurrection, he's he's talking about this this very issue that we're talking about right now. He asks whether whether you have to have the same body after the resurrection or the same material for your body that you had before. And he, and he says, and he says, yes, you, you, you do. At least you have to have some of the same material. And, and he brings up as an objection against his own view, cannibalism. And, and it's kind of gruesome. I'm not going to go into all the details, but, but he says, he says, you know, what if, you know, what if, for example, some guy, who's a cannibal, you know, consumes what used to be part of another human person. And now that matter, you know, comes to be part of him. Well, at the resurrection, who's going to get that matter? 
And St. Thomas even, he, he goes through the trouble of laying out various principles whereby you can sort out that kind of issue. And he says, well, generally speaking, the guy to whom the matter belonged first, he's going to get it. And then he brings up this, this really kind of gruesome example. He says, well, let's say you have two parents, okay, and they've been raised as, they were raised from, you know, infancy as cannibals, these two parents, okay, so they grew up as cannibals, they've lived their whole life as cannibals, and then then they have a child, and and their child has, you know, this is it's really sick, right, but their, their child has only ever kind of, you know, he's got all of his material from previously existing, you know, human flesh that belonged to some other poor, poor soul. Okay, well, what about this kid? So this, this kid, you know, he's kind of, you know, fully <laughs> dependent for his body on other people's matter. You know, so the resurrection, what's going to happen? What's going to happen with him? Is he just going to have no body or, or what? What gives? And, and St. Thomas says, well, if, if there were such a case as that, then, you know, God in his providence and in his omnipotence, he'll, he'll make up any, any, he'll make up for any matter that's, that's lacking. Right. So he basically says at the end of it, look, look, God will, God will supply any, any needed matter. If you have, if you have gruesome cases uh, like that, that need to get, need to get fixed up. So anyways, yeah. So you can see that, that, that Daniel's he's, he's anticipating uh, some of St. Thomas's uh, objections there. And anyways, that's, that's a text you can all consult if you're interested in, checking out some of those, those details. Sorry, could you just say really quick what text that was again? Oh, yeah, that was, that was in the Summa Contra Gentiles. I don't remember the question number off the top of my head. It, it's, it's, in, it's in the fourth book, though, when he's talking about the various mysteries of the Catholic faith, and he brings up the resurrection, and you'll you'll see that there's a question that's dedicated to objections against the bodily resurrection. And so you want to read through those objections and then look at his reply. And it's really in his replies to these objections that he brings up the, the cannibal uh, scenario. If you email me, Gabriela, I can, I, I'll, I can email you the, the exact uh, question. If you're okay. in chapter, chapter in this case. Yeah. And I'm not just interested in the cannibalism part, but yeah, yeah this was cool. And answer yeah. some questions that I've been having. So. Okay, cool. Cool. Probably not questions about cannibalism, I would I would assume. Right. Yeah, just about other other related things. <laughs> so what 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 did you guys think about about the way that Aristotle kind of approaches the truth by considering the positions of the pre-Socratics. Did, did you guys think that that's a, an appropriate way to approach the truth? You think it's a, a wise way, you know, to, to approach the truth on a, on a certain matter by looking at what your predecessors had to say first. And then by comparing those, those sayings, those teachings to things that you actually know, and then just trying to sort out the truth that way. Yeah, I mean, I would. I think it's it's for, for a. I mean, there's probably a lot of ways to analyze it, but to start as a as a rhetorical mechanism to dispose your audience 
you know, uh, people are usually aware of someone who's going to reinvent the world, so to speak. So if you at least take seriously your predecessor's attempts at uh, understanding the world and and kind of finding what is good in it, uh, that that seems to be, uh, you know, at least to dispose the reader well, at least, and then to show precisely why and breaking down kind of that, you know, some of what they what they uh, articulated was correct in the sense that he breaks down the the kind of modes of reasoning. Uh, and, and that's what lays the foundation, I think, for the later discussions around, you know, because mm-hmm. I mean, it's also maybe the approach that Thomas takes and understanding we understand almost error before we understand truth. So um, for a variety of reasons. And so I think there's kind of uh, it's it's uh, probably a, a, a very grounded understanding of, of the human reasoning as such. And then also it helps dispose the reader to understand as they go along. Yeah, that's that's actually a really good point. I mean, yeah, one thing that yeah you just brought up, Dan, is that is that Aristotle Aristotle seems to to know his his audience well, and and we might we might uh, take that in at least a couple ways. He 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 knows his his immediate audience, his his ancient Greek audience, and he knows that that. They, they will. He knows that they've read these pre-Socratics. He knows that they're familiar with their positions, that they respect uh, the pre-Socratic positions in some way. So, so yeah. So dialectically, rhetorically, it's kind of a smart move for him to know, for for for, for him to for him to make. And then I think also he knows. He just knows the the human mind, which you alluded to as well. That he he sees that that we. At first, uh, kind of see the truth, but maybe in such a way that it, that it is bound up with with certain errors, or at least with various possible errors. Huh? That we first see the truth in a partial way, and and only later do we come to see the truth in, in a fuller way, and with greater determinacy, and in a way that's not mixed together with errors. That takes a lot of effort. So, so he knows his immediate audience, and then he knows his kind of more general audience, right? Just the, the human person as such and, and how he advances, uh, how the human person advances in his understanding of, of reality, just in, in general. So, yeah, I think that's what you said is very well put. And he's starting off humble, <clears throat> humble, right? Like humility is kind of <clears throat> the basis of, of all knowledge knowing that you don't know. So, yeah. Absolutely. No, that absolutely. And uh, there's, there's actually a really great text in Aristotle's metaphysics in book two of the metaphysics where he, where he talks about that precisely. And he even says that, that we should be grateful to our predecessors. And he says, even to those who, who haven't really, you know, seen the truth clearly. So he says, look, we should be grateful to those that have, have made attempts at, at knowing the truth uh, prior to us. Even those that have made serious errors because their, their errors can be very instructive. Yes. Yeah, so he's, he's grateful to his predecessors. I think you're right that he's, he's, he's assuming 
a, a kind of stance of, of humility here as well, right? He knows that that he can't he can't come to know these things just on his own. He needs the help of his predecessors, right? He wouldn't he Aristotle wouldn't be in the in the position that he's in were it not for spending decades, literally decades, in 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 Plato's academy, right? So. So yeah, he owes a lot. In some sense, he owes almost everything, right, to his 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 predecessors. And I think it's important to see the the marked distinction in approach to philosophy that you find between Aristotle on the one hand, and then someone like Rene Descartes on the other hand. For those of you guys that have have read some of Descartes, you know that Descartes he he began he begins philosophy kind of anew by doing what? Well, precisely by throwing away everything that his predecessors have said, right? He says, look, I'm going to shut myself up in my little study and I'm, I'm going to assume that what everyone else prior to me has said about things like metaphysics is, is just so much trash. And, and I'm going to start, I'm going to, I'm going to try to reinvent the, the science of metaphysics and other philosophical sciences just from what I can come up with all by myself. There's a huge distinction there between the way that, that Aristotle does philosophy within, well, consciously, I should say, within this, this great philosophical tradition and the way that Rene Descartes uh, attempts to do philosophy by, by cutting himself off from the great philosophical tradition. Uh, prior to himself. And, and unfortunately, that's not something that is unique to Descartes in the modern period, but that, that almost becomes, you know, a kind of, a kind of battle cry. You know, it's, it's a, uh, it's, it's like a Protestant approach to, to philosophy. You, know, you, you cut yourself off from the tradition. It's like a, yeah. Anyways, I think you guys get the point. That reminds me of like kind of my experience when we read Descartes in school and it's sort of like he goes on a very different trajectory than like if we read Aristotle through and we end with reading the metaphysics, you know, your whole work with Aristotle is building up to God and Descartes, he basically hands you these proofs for God and then ends it by saying, now let's apply this to medicine. And I thought that was interesting how you see that the trajectory is like completely different and unsatisfying in a way. Um, but also just the idea of error or discussion was interesting um, because it kind of shows you what questions to ask. Um, like the experience I had reading St. Thomas was he puts things so clearly, which is beautiful, but sometimes it strikes you as being so obvious. Um, and so some of the work in that is picking apart why that is more complex than it might seem. Um, so yeah, I don't know. I kind of appreciate this method. Um, yeah, in the physics, it's cool. Yeah, yeah, and, and I think I right a... to see the... Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Yeah, go ahead, Dan. No, no, no. no please continue. Sorry, I'll, I'll ask it after. Oh, I, I was just gonna. I, I was just gonna agree with with Gabriella that that it's 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 kind of right. I think to see that St. Thomas's method as it's expressed in what's sometimes called the, the disputational style, that something like the Summa Theologiae is written in, which, which was a method that was, that was common in the 13th century, 
I think it's right to say that that method uh, harmonizes quite well with what Aristotle is doing, right? Where you, you ask a question, you consider various objections, many of which might be from, from predecessors, and then you try to give a determination of, of, of the truth of the matter, but then you, you go back and you try to make sense out of, out of any partial truths that, that are contained in those objections, right? You, you try to, and you try to show how your predecessors, you know, saw, saw the truth, at least, at least to some extent, or, or maybe, maybe they saw it, you know, fully, but there are more than, uh, there, there are multiple ways perhaps of, of reading, reading their text or understanding their thought. So, yeah, so there's a great harmony between what Aristotle is doing here and, and, and what the medieval scholastics uh, were doing in, the disputa- in using the disputational style. Sorry, Dan, go ahead, please. Um, I had a question kind of particular about, um, I guess it's around the notion of quantity and its place as... Um, obviously, because the division, you know, Aristotle talks about, you know, the, the many and the one, I guess, and their their relation to explaining cause and how does how does ma- what is the relation between matter and quantity and how we, I guess, cogitate like what where is that rest and understanding and why is that kind of his approach in terms of explaining what's going on? Because quantity is maybe one could say that it's the first thing known to us or it's the first accident of, of, of matter or, uh, right. I'm kind of easily remembering my, yeah, my, uh, Thomas yeah. here, but like the importance of quantity, I guess, and the knowability we have in regards to the, the sun, I guess, and how, it, when it's placed as uh, kind of in the text as a means of understanding. Yeah, so I, I well, I, I I think you're right in seeing that that, that quantity, d- dimensive quantity, is is the accident that's 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 closest to uh, to material substance, and that in some senses is closest to matter. Well, and Saint Thomas will point out that 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 shape, the physical shape of of a material substance, which which he oftentimes will will describe as the the qualitas circa quantitatum the quality around quantity meaning dimensive quantity he says that that's the that that's the uh, accident that is most closely connected to a material substance's substantial form and so i think looking at at both of those uh, sorts of accidents helps us to see just how fundamental quantity dimensive quantity is uh, in in terms of in terms of uh, the the very being of a material substance, and it it's certainly it's certainly an accident that is absolutely foundational in our in our knowing, uh, in in particular in our in our sense knowledge, right? Because uh, you have you have uh, the distinction of number. Right, you have this thing and that thing, like chair number one, chair number two, or man number one, man number two, and and uh, that difference in number is is based on dimensive quantity, and that's something that we that we grasp, you know, immediately through the, uh, you know, with the senses, 
it's one of those it's one of those common sensibles, uh, as Aristotle puts it, right? It's one of those those sensible characteristics of things that can be known by by two or more of the senses, and it's something that's foundational for for other accidents like color, and 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 others, right? So, yeah, I think you're right to see that that the quantity is something that is absolutely foundational. Uh, for our ability to sense things, to sense uh, material substances and their and their characteristics. I don't know, was that the kind of thing you're looking for or did you have something maybe more particular uh, in mind, Dan? Uh, yeah, kind of. I mean, I, yeah, and I guess it's, it's, it's an understanding of if there's some relation between the ordering of how he approaches what to argue first and if that is implicitly there uh some it's he, he's approaching it because there's something about the nature of say you know because he, he's addressing our uh, the errors of say you know uh, multitude or quantity in terms of many or finite and then attacking the one and basically what the what the reasoning behind that is what that is informing us of in terms of his kind of heuristic for us to understand the principles oh i if see okay okay so i yeah. see yeah, gotcha. I, I see where you're going. Okay. Yeah. So it seems to me that that there that there are are kind of two fundamental questions on his mind that are intimately related to to one another. Uh, these are two fundamental questions that he has, I think, right at the beginning of, of physics, book one, and and they are, what are the the principles of mobile being? Okay. Now, when you ask that question. You're kind of in, inquiring into the the very natures of the principles of mobile being, and then intimately connected with that, you're also asking, well, how many uh, principles? And here you're what you're wondering about intrinsic principles, huh? How many intrinsic principles are there? So you're kind of simultaneously asking, what are the natures of these principles, and 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 how many are there? And yeah, so that's that's what he has on on his mind first. Now, uh, he he seems to kind of answer both of those questions uh, simultaneously as as well as as we move forward. I don't think he ever fully divorces, you know, the the one from the other. So so he's looking at the principles you might say, kind of uh, qualitatively and quantitatively, at at the same time, and. Yeah, he never fully isolates, at least so far as I can I can see, uh, one of those aspects from the other. So he never says, let's just talk about the number of principles of natural things without also attending to their to their qualitative characteristics, so to speak, or to what they are. Nor does he say, hey, let's just think about what they are without without talking about how many of them there are. I don't think yeah, he, he ever does that. Now, yeah, I, I don't. I don't think I have Dan a, a, a complete account of a complete explanation of maybe why exactly he, he proceeds in that way. But there, I, I just try to note note the fact uh, for you, and, and it seems like that that at least to some extent fits with with your reading as well. Yeah, yeah. I was just trying to see if there's a deeper meaning to, yeah, the particular approach of the errors. I mean, I know Thomas Obviously is, is, is extremely systematic and formal 
in why he even liked the ordering of like the objections uh, for a variety of reasons. But I just don't know if that that level of <clears throat> formality is present in Aristotle in terms of that you can dissect it in such a way that there's there's something he's he's attempting to you know and uh, have you infer basically from that ordering. Right. So. I see. I see. Yeah, it seems to me that maybe one one thing you can see about the order that he proceeds in is it seems to me that he he tries to he tries to refute the how to put it the 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 more problematic uh, answers to the question what are the principles of nature and how many are there he tries to refute the more pro- problematic ones the the ones that are maybe uh, more obviously faulty. He tries to take those out first. I mentioned how he he attacks the one extreme and then the other, and then that narrows it down to to three positions rather than the initial five. And then what he does is he takes out one of those extremes and then the other, and that leaves him with with a final kind of mean position. I think what he's doing is is, is he's taking out the errors, going from those that are most obviously errors. For those that are, are are less obviously errors, and then once he gets that final mean position that says, "Hey, look, the the number of principles is many but finite in number." Well, then then you wonder, well, how many are we talking about? And 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 there it seems as if as if you have to you have to ask yourself, well, how many principles do I need in order to account for the phenomena that I'm I'm trying to account for? And what is the so at least when he's when he's proceeding kind of probabilistically, or as he says uh, through the mode of as Saint Thomas says through the mode of disputation, he he asks, well, kind of using Occam's razor or something like that, he asks, well, how can I account for the phenomena that I'm that I'm looking at without without positing causes without necessity or principles without without need, without a kind of absolute need to do so. So he brings that in as well uh, as, as a criterion or as a scientific principle that he's using. Um, anyway, so that's something, uh, yeah, th- those are a couple of things I think that are operative in those first, um, those, those first chapters where he's dealing with these different positions, chapters two through six. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I don't want to monopolize more time, but I guess I would, Maybe, you know, briefly ask then, why would, you know, to us today who are, you know, kind of um, in a world where, you know, you know atomism and kind of, uh, I'll say reductionism to a certain extent, like the notion of maybe the idea of the one being less erroneous in terms of addressing arguments would be more, less of an error to Aristotle than kind of the atomistic theories he discards first. Is it some relation to Plato and is it like relating to the forms? And is so like, you know, that's kind of what I'm also asking too. Like, cause us, it doesn't seem intuitive uh, that the, you know, if the notion of the one being, being kind of a one thing, uh, like, you know, that's, that's something that's not very part of the, like a common reasoning would arrive at. But maybe that's also not its audience as well. So. When you say it's not as obvious, you, you mean that, that these days maybe, you wouldn't have as many takers of that of that position. Is that what you mean? Uh, well, no. I'm just saying, like, I guess that the fact is, obviously, he, he's writing to a philosophical audience who would probably. I, I guess I don't know. Obviously, 
putting it in context that he's it's post Plato. So the notion of kind of schools of thought where, you know, I guess I don't want to distract into our discussion about Plato, but the notion of the one, you know, being, being made up of one where you kind of ascend a notion of forms is something that seems that, you know, one could allude to as being more true. And so I'm just saying in terms of, if we're talking about that, the errors he discards first are errors that are, more erroneous um, and more easy to dismiss. And then the words, the errors he, he gets rid of last are ones that are, uh, one could see being as less erroneous. It's kind of, that's that's a, a curious fact because it seems to us when you look at the, the atomistic theories, if anything, those are the ones that people often, nowadays at least, uh, reason to first are considered kind of um, yeah. taken for granted, I guess. I know it's it's a confused question. I should formalize it better. I'm I'm kind of asking in a confused fashion. So, yeah. Well, no, no. I I think I think I'm, I think I understand you. So I think the the position that he takes out first, that of Parmenides and Ulysses, that one says that that it basically says the the material universe, the natural world, does not exist at all. There only exists a, a single eternal, uh, un, unchangeable being, and and I think the, the position that's maybe closest to modern atomism would be the position of Democritus, which, which survives the first, uh, the first refutations, if you will, right? So he takes out positions one and five, and then he's left with two, three, and four. And, and Democritus' position is, 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 one of, is one of those, so it's taken out later. By the way, uh, maybe next time I, I can... I can give you guys before we jump into chapter seven, how I, how I I think uh, following an, another Thomist, how I think the 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 modern account uh, of, of principles of natural things that you find that you find espoused by some modern physicists, how that fits together with with ancient philosophical monism and ancient philosophical pluralism. I, I think there is a way in which a lot of modern physicists in their in their philosophical reflections on the principles of medical things have not moved beyond the pre-Socratics. And maybe that's something worth thinking about, at least for a few minutes next class. So I'll, I'll, I'll try to throw that in there uh, if, if it's of interest to you guys. All right. Well, you guys have been, have been very patient tonight. I apologize that we've, we've, we've gone beyond the, the two hour mark. Uh, I don't know where you all are in the country. For some of you, it might be getting kind of late. Maybe some of you guys are ready to go another hour. I don't know. But anyway, that, that's what the discussion, uh, you know, line is for. So please, you know, keep up any discussions you, you want to over the course of the week. And I'll definitely try to check in. And I'll look forward to anything you guys might have to, to say. All right. So why don't we, why don't we close, with a, let's close with a brief prayer, just to glory be. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. Our Lady, Seat of Wisdom, pray for us. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Amen. To learn more, visit magnusinstitute.org. Copyright 2020, Albertus Magnus Institute, Incorporated, All Rights Reserved.